God is a heartless, distant hothead in the Old Testament. But in the New Testament, he's a loving, gracious father. That's a very popular belief. But it's totally not true. God doesn't change. God is loving. God is gracious. And he is just throughout the Bible and throughout history. And we're in the book of Judges. And we're going to be looking at chapters 9 through 12 this morning. And it puts his grace on full display. So anyone who thinks the Old Testament pictures God and depicts God as this hothead who's distant and heartless hasn't read this passage and really hasn't read a lot of the Old Testament with their eyes open. So if you'll turn to Judges chapter 9 with me or open up your app, whatever you got. Um, But if you could actually, actually, if you go to Judges 21, I want to point you to the end first. I want to look at the very last verse in Judges. Because this is the lens we need to look at the rest of the book of Judges with from chapter 9 on. So Judges chapter 21 verse 25. I'll be using the ESV, the English Standard Version. It says, 21:25. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That's the rest of this book. Everyone doing whatever they want, whenever they want. So don't be shocked by the increasing brokenness and chaos we see as we read this book. But instead, be shocked by God's grace, by God's love for His people, even though they're so disobedient, even though they're so messed up. So, let's, let's thumb back a few pages to chapter 9. We're going to look at several different characters here this morning. The first one is Abimelech. And Abimelech is the son of Gideon. We talked about Gideon last week. And Abimelech is a messed up dude. Okay, he's really broken, but here's why. His dad, Gideon, at the end of his life, started to go after idols. So in chapter 8, verse 27, it says, And Gideon made an ephod of it and put it in the city in Ophrah, and all Israel whored after it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and to his family became a snare to Gideon and his family. His son Abimelech included idolatry, failure to finish well on Gideon's part, failure to live out what our children's ministry is named after, Deuteronomy 6, teaching our kids to love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, and teaching them not just on a Sunday morning, but as you walk through your day, as you're doing this, as you're doing that, showing them, teaching them what it means to love God and to obey God. And Gideon didn't do that at the end of his life. Gideon had some great moments in his life, but he didn't finish well. And Abimelech is a byproduct of that. He's a son of his who only cared about himself. So I'm going to give you a Reader's Digest version of chapter 9 of Abimelech's life. So just by raise of hand, who knows what Reader's Digest is even? Okay, good. Most of you are with me. Uh, I had to read it, I think, in sixth grade, um, and it's it's just shortened stories. So um, I'm giving you a shortened version of what's what's going on. So here's what happened: Abimelech cons the leaders of this town, Shechem, to make him king. Okay, and then he's like, "Well, I think I'm going to kill seventy of my brothers." 
just so they don't want to be king too. So he does it, and he kills them all on one stone. And I don't know how that worked, but it couldn't have been pretty, right? Seventy people, and they're your brothers. But one brother got away. His name was Jotham, uh, and he called out Abimelech. He got on top of a mountain so that Abimelech wouldn't kill him there on the spot and says, hey, more or less, he just says, hey, you're messed up. What you're doing isn't right. And Abimelech's like, yeah, I don't care, whatever. Then... This is Reader's Digest version, okay? Uh, God causes the leaders of Shechem to turn against Abimelech for killing his brothers, okay? So God gets involved, but not in the way he usually gets involved in Judges because Abimelech doesn't even recognize God. He doesn't talk to God. He doesn't want anything to do with God because he's all about himself. So he causes these leaders who made him king, God causes these leaders who made Abimelech king to turn on him. So Abimelech and his men trap all of these leaders in a tower and burns them alive. Then they went to another town and tried to do the same thing. And right as Abimelech's going to light this thing on fire, I'm sure he had his Bic lighter ready to go. A woman throws a stone at him and hits him in the head. And he's about to die. Okay? Not a coincidence that it was one stone that killed him in a shameful way. And it was very shameful in this culture for, to be killed by a woman. So he turns to his armor bearer. He's like, I don't want to be the dude who's known as getting killed by a woman when I didn't expect it by one stone. So can you just finish me off? So he does with his sword. And that's the end of Abimelech. Abimelech had a lot of natural consequences that came to him for serving himself, right? God caused his own people to turn against him because God does oppose the proud. Bimelech never cries out to God, never even inter- interacts with God. So he's killed in a shameful way. And then it's, it's in the same way that he shamefully killed his brothers. See, serving himself led ultimately to his death. And that's what all self-service does. We think it's going to lead to happiness. We think it's going to lead to joy. This is where it's at. Making it all about number one when it actually just leads to death. But God, being gracious, chapter 10, picking up in verse 1, says, After Abimelech, there arose to save Israel, Tola, the son of Pua, son of Dodo. How would you like to be the son of Dodo? Or just Dodo. Anyway, a man of Issachar, and he lived at Shamir in the hill country of Ephraim, and he judged Israel 23 years. Then he died and was buried at Shamir. After him arose Jer, uh, I don't know how to pronounce that, sorry, Jer, the Gileadite, who judged Israel 22 years. After he had 30 sons, he rode on 30 donkeys, and they had 30 cities called Havath Jer to this day, which are in the land of Gilead. And Jer died and was buried in Cammon. And you, when you're reading the book of Judges, you read those five verses and go, okay, whatever. We just learned about three guys, and we don't really know anything about them except they're riding donkeys. That's cool. Um, move, let's, let's just move on. But we can't skip past this. We can't just blow by this. See, God, it says, he even uses the words, 
he, there arose a guy told us to save Israel. Now remember what just happened. They had a leader, Abimelech, who was all about himself, didn't care about God. And how does God respond? Well, I know how I would respond. I'd say, yeah, whatever, Israel, see you later. No, instead he saves them. You see the grace here? God saves Israel. Grace is unearned favor. And it's not only not earned here. These guys deserve the hammer, you know? But instead, he gives them grace. And God, God like, I, like I started with, God is often viewed in the Old Testament as this moral monster who turns loving and gracious in the New Testament. But not at all. He's the same gracious, loving God throughout history. What amazing grace this is. And if you're here and you're like, why would God do this to a people who are so against him? Why would he show them this amazing grace? And if you're asking that question, then you're starting to understand grace. It doesn't make sense. It's unearned. It's undeserved. That's the point. It doesn't make sense. But of course, we have God being gracious, and now we have another broken person. In this case, a whole nation, all of Israel. So we keep reading chapter 10, verse 6. The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And let's count them. And served the Baals and the Ashroth, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, and the gods of the Philistines. Seven. And they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. You might think, what's the big deal? Seven idols. Well, every other time up to this point, usually mentions one or two idols that they go after. But now, seven of them. Why? Seven in the Bible is always the number of completion. They completely gave themselves to idols at this point. So we have this cycle going on in Judges. And what happens is people do evil. So they're going after idols here. And then, because of that, there's consequences. Verse 7, So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of the Philistines and into the hand of the Ammonites, and they crushed and oppressed the people of Israel that year. For 18 years they oppressed all the people of Israel who were beyond the Jordan in the land of the Amorites, which is Gilead. And the Ammonites crossed the Jordan to fight also against Judah and against Benjamin and against the house of Ephraim, so that Israel was severely distressed. They were oppressed for 18 years. This is longer by far than any other oppression that's happened thus far in the book of Judges because they had completely given themselves over to idols. And so then Israel cries out, verse 10, people of Israel cried out to the Lord saying, we have sinned against you because we have forsaken our God and have served the Baals. And usually at this point, God goes, okay, I'll save you. Doesn't happen this time. Verse 11, and the Lord said to the people of Israel, did I not save you from the Egyptians? And from the Amorites, from the Ammonites, and from the Philistines, the Sidonians also, and the Malachites, and the Moanites oppressed you, and you cried out to me, and I saved you out of their hand, yet you have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore, I will save you no more. Go and cry out to the gods whom you have chosen. Let them save you in the time of your distress. This is dripping with sarcasm. 
Let your idols save you. It's interesting. God mentioned seven groups of people that he saved them from. So God is saying, I completely saved you. Remember, it's the number of completion. I completely saved you, and you completely turned your back on me. So let those idols, let these idols save you. They're facing the natural consequences of their sin and idolatry. You might think, well, I thought God was gracious. Why is he giving up on them? And I don't think he's giving up on them. I just think he's being a great dad here to his people. Think of, think of a toddler. Not that this has happened to me at all. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. So, spicy chips. You ever try to give spicy chips to a toddler? Okay, some of them like them. It's weird. Not very many. So I remember one time with my son, Brandon, I think about five times I was like, this is really spicy. You're not going to like it. Don't eat it. He's like, no, I really want it. Dad. I'm like, no, don't eat the spicy chip. Well, finally, I just gave up and said, all right, eat it. He ate it and he hated it and was crying and it was a big scene, right? You know how much sympathy I had for him? None. Yeah, Exactly. I think I was being a good dad at that point, letting him face the natural consequences of it. There just comes a point, right? Like if you have a teenager, um, let's say, and I, and I hope this hasn't or, or doesn't happen to you, and I'm sorry if it has, but let's say a teenager uh, gets a DUI. You get a call from the cops. You know what I think a good dad would do in that moment? Just let him face the consequences. Theologian said this, there's a difference between a prodigal who comes to his senses and returns home and a whore who pleads for her husband's security only until she finds someone else to take her on. See, God's not giving up on his people. He's letting them face the natural consequences of their sin. People often can't change without hitting rock bottom. But then, verse 15, Israel gets rid of their idols. Verse 15, the people of Israel said to the Lord, We have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you. Only please deliver us this day. So they put away the foreign gods among them and served the Lord. So it seems like they're more serious. It seems like they're more repentant. They're actually getting stuff together. They're getting rid of idols. But was it really that different from what happened a few verses ago in verse 10? Probably not. They're probably just more desperate because they realized, oh yeah, God's right. Our idols won't save us. So they're coming back to God. And God has this incredibly gracious response at the end of verse 16. And he became impatient over the misery of Israel. And that's really bad translation of the original Hebrew. The New Living Translation gets it more right. He says, or it says, he was grieved by their misery. He was grieved by their misery. Even though they created that misery, right? They turned to idols. They brought all of this on themselves. 
And God is still grieved to see his children hurting. Dale Ralph Davis. There's another name. We got good names going on this morning. Dale Ralph Davis, I think, wrote one of the best commentaries on Judges, if you're into commentaries. He says this, Our hope does not rest in the sincerity of our repentance, but in the intensity of Yahweh's compassion. God responds graciously to them, not because they they got really serious about their sin, but because his daddy instinct couldn't bear watching them suffer anymore. This is all about God's gracious, compassionate heart towards his people. It's not about the sincerity of his people. Praise God, right? Praise God that his grace towards us flows from his character more than it flows from our broken attempts to repent, right? Because how many of us, I mean, so often we come to God with our sin. God, I'm really sorry this time. God's just like, yeah, sure. But I love you and I forgive you because what I did on the cross And I'm going to forgive you not because you're really sorry versus sorry last. I'm going to forgive you because I'm gracious. I'm going to forgive you because that's my character. That's who I am. That's that's why I came and died and rose from the dead. So God responds in his grace. Now let's move on to chapter 11. We now have this broken dude named Jephthah. All right, chapter 11, verse 1. Now, Jephthah the Gileadite was a mighty warrior. That's a good thing. But he was the son of a prostitute. Gilead was the father of Jephthah, and Gilead's wife also bore him sons. And when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, You shall not have an inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. Then Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tob, And worthless fellows collected around Jephthah and went out with him. Really? Really, God? Jephthah is going to be your deliverer? Okay, yeah, he was a mighty warrior, but he's an illegitimate outcast who hung out with idiots, right? So with worthless fellows, it says. Let's keep reading. So just remember that. These people are like, yeah, this guy's, this guy's a military thug, but what, we don't like him because he was born illegitimately. Get, get out of here. We don't like you, Jephthah. And then they turn around in verse 4. After a time, the Ammonites made war against Israel. And when the Ammonites made war against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to God. No, that's not what it says. They should have. Instead, they went to bring Jephthah from the land of Tob. Oh, so they're turning to the guy they just rejected. Good idea. What? Verse 6. And they said to Jephthah, Come and be our leader that we may fight against the Ammonites. But Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, Did you not hate me and drive me out of my father's house? Why have you come to me now that you are in distress? Verse 8. And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, That is why we have turned to you now that you may go with us and fight against the Ammonites and be our head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, if you bring me home again to fight against the Ammonites and the Lord gives them over to me, 
I'll be your head. And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, The Lord will be witness between us if we do not do as we say. Clearly, these leaders of Israel still were not trusting God and not turning to God. They were turning to people. See, the past judges, all of the past judges, God raises them up. Here they found their own judge. They found their own leader. We're going we're to take matters into our own hands. And that's a good picture of what all the people are doing at this time in Israel. Just taking matters in their own hands. Now, Jephthah is an interesting character. And he has what I would call uh, a hot dog type faith. Okay? Now, I don't know if you know a lot about hot dogs. Okay, but I'm just going to read some ingredients for you here. <laughs> you, you obviously know about hot dogs. That's all right. I still love them. Uh, many of you won't after this. Mechanically separated turkey. Mechanically separated chicken, pork, water. Oh, there's the first ingredient that I would like to eat, water. Cultured dextrose. I don't even want to know what that is. Uh, But it only contains less than 2% of dextrose. The caveat there. Salt, corn syrup, distilled white vinegar, cultured celery juice. Um, What? (laughs) <laughs> sodium phosphate cherry powder? <laughs> I, di- I didn't actually read this ahead of time. I only read the first one. Um, and then ingredients used to preserve quality. <laughs> this is great. Um, so uh, let me tell you the USDA's definition of mechanically separated turkey. Okay, we'll just start with the first ingredient. <laughs> it, it's a paste or batter-like poultry product manufactured by forcing turkey bones with attached edible tissue through a sieve under high pressure, a process called advanced meat recovery. <laughs> this is not make, you can't make this stuff up. This is the USDA, okay? You're eating bones. It, okay, it's, plus everything else, dextrose, only 2%. It's fine. Cherry powder, it's good. So this, this is what Jephthah's faith was like, okay? Here's the point. He wanted a little bit of God. He wanted a little bit of his own selfish desire, and he wanted a little bit of idols, pagan practice. And this was a great representation of the people at this time in Israel. Hot dog faith. A little bit of this, a little bit of that, a little bit of Jesus. No, doesn't work out. So, but let's start with the good. Jephthah served God. So, again, Reader's Digest version, chapter 11, verses 12 to 28. He tries to negotiate with the Ammonites, their enemies. He tries to make a deal with them. He uses his words first to try to avoid war. So that's good. And he tells of the history of God giving Israel this land. So he knows at least something about following God. But the Ammonites, of course, don't listen. They're like, no, this is our land. So God's spirit was given to Jephthah to defeat the Ammonites. Even though it was a guy that God didn't put his seal on or anything, God's like, okay, I still really care about you, Israel. I'm going to give you the victory. So verse 29, 11 verse 29, Then the spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah, 
And he passed through Gilead and Manasseh and passed on to Mizpah of Gilead. And from Mizpah of Gilead, he passed on to the Ammonites. Come down to verse 32. So Jephthah crossed over to the Ammonites to fight against them. And the Lord gave them into his hand. And he struck them from Aror to the neighborhood of Minnith, 20 cities. And as far as Abel Karamim, with a great blow. So the Ammonites were subdued before the people of Israel. So sweet. He even had the spirit of God, which is super rare in the Old Testament. So for this specific task, he gets the, the spirit of God. This seems like pure steak, right? Not hot dog faith. Well, I left something out. Let's go back to the verses I skipped. Verse 30. Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. Oh, no. Verse 34, Then Jephthah came to his home at Mizpah. This is after the battle. And behold, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and with dances. She was his only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. And as soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you've brought me very low and you've become the cause of great trouble to me. For I have opened my mouth to the Lord and I cannot take back my vow. And she said to him, My father, you have opened your mouth to the Lord. Do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth, now that the Lord has avenged you on your enemies, on the Ammonites. In verse 37, so she said to her father, let this thing be done to me. Leave me alone two months that I might go up and down on the mountains and weep for my virginity, I and my companions. So he said, go. Then he sent her away for two months and she departed. She and her companions and wept for her virginity on the mountains. And at the end of two months, she returned to her father, who did with her according to his vow that he had made. She had never known a man, and it became a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went year by year to lament the daughter of Jephthah the Gileadite four days in the year. Jephthah served God, definitely, but he, he here is starting to serve idols. And you might be like, I didn't see any idol worship in that passage. What are you talking about? Well, it was common to make deals with these idols, with Baal, with these other so-called gods. And it was also common in these deals to include sacrifices. And the costly, the better. And of course, human life being the most costly, having the most effect. He was treating God like the other gods, because he totally misunderstood God. So two important things to note. Jephthah did kill his own daughter. Now, I read some things trying to make a case for the fact, no, he didn't actually go through and offer her as a burnt offering. Um, She just remained a virgin the rest of her life. So his family named him and passed on, and that was a tragic thing. And I just don't see it in there. Why would she ask to go off for two months to mourn before this happened? You got your whole life to mourn that. Why would she need two months? I think, it's, I think it's pretty clear. He followed through on this. But more importantly is that God never accepted this deal with Jephthah. Notice how God is eerily silent through all of this. 
He doesn't accept this deal, and he doesn't ask him to follow through with it either. See, we're starting to see the mechanically separated turkey in Jephthah, so to speak, right? He follows God into battle, but now he's treating God like the false gods. He had this severe misunderstanding of God's character and of God's grace. See, he served God, he served idols, but he also served himself. The story gets worse. So chapter 12, verses 1 through 7, here's essentially what happens. He kills 42,000 Israelites of his own people. So here's what happens. Ephraimites, they're another tribe in Israel. He comes to them and they're acting like hormonal teenagers. I don't know how else to say it. They are. They're like, you didn't let us fight with you against the enemy. Hmm. Come on, man. You didn't let us fight. So we're going to burn your house down. We're going to huff and puff and burn your house down. Okay, that's essentially what they're doing, right? And Jephthah responds to his ungrateful teenage brother by punching him in the face. No, by killing him. He's a hothead who kills 42,000 of his own people, of God's people. He's serving himself. You dare question me? You dare question my leadership? Die. And it's really a funny story how he does it. I, in a weird way, funny. Um, I'll, I'll let you go and read it, but they're trying to figure out who's who. Because they're all Israelites, so they probably look pretty similar, right? So they're trying to figure out who's who in battle. So they, they ask him this question, and uh, they say, Hey, can you say Shibboleth? And if they responded Sibboleth, they knew that they were an Ephraimite, so they killed him. And it'd be like asking, you know, if, if it was like Iowa versus Texas, right? You just ask them to say sweet tea, okay? And you'd know the Texans because they'd say sweet tea, right? <laughs> Iowans go tea. So that's, that's similar to what's going on. In a weird way, it's kind of funny, but yet not because he was killing his own people with that method. Essentially, Jephthah doesn't, understand God. He doesn't understand the true character of God. And I love the Bible project. The Bible project uh, just has uh, really succinct um, videos explaining each book of the Bible. And I wanted to just show you a little clip explaining a little bit about Jephthah here. So check this out. See, the main part of God's character that he missed, that's all over this story, is God's grace. And the end of this section, chapter 12, 8 through 15, we see three more judges. Even after, after Jephthah kills 42,000 of his own people and sacrifices his daughter, even after that, God shows his grace to them by raising up three more saviors. We don't really learn much about them. 
And it's like, really, God? They really don't deserve this now. But that's his grace. And that's where the story ends. So three takeaways. What do we do with this in 2018? First, is that when you serve yourself and when you serve idols, you reject God's grace. When you serve yourself, when you serve idols, you reject God's grace. Jonah 2 Verse 8 in NIV says, Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. Love that verse. See, Abimelech clung to the idol of himself, and he was miserable and he was joyless. Why? Because he was forfeiting and rejecting God's grace by serving himself. Israel clung to idols, seven of them. They were miserable and they were joyless. Why? They were forfeiting, forfeiting and rejecting God's grace by serving idols. You've experienced this. Here's a prevalent lie going on in our culture right now that I'm tempted to believe some days as well. Live for yourself and for your own comfort and for your own security. That's what will make you truly happy. The truth, though, is that living for yourself leads to misery and leaves you joyless. Many of you know my story. Many of you do not. But I, I had a choice when I was a teenager. One summer, I decided to live for myself. And my idol was tennis. And I spent all sorts of time playing tennis. And you know what? I was left pretty empty and joyless. Because tennis just couldn't deliver what I wanted it to deliver for me. I didn't get it. The next summer, I was a camp counselor. And it was really hard. Up there for one of the hardest tasks I've ever had to do. But here's the thing. I've never enjoyed God more in my life than I had serving those kids by being a camp counselor serving god by being a camp counselor why because i was enjoying god's grace i was serving god see we're, we that's what we were created for and we think if because we're we're so sinful and messed up and broken in our thing we think if i just serve myself or this other thing or this other person then i'll be really happy and it, it just leaves us empty but when we serve God, even when it's difficult to serve God, when we serve Him, that's what brings us true joy, true happiness. See, each day we have a choice. We can stiff-arm God's grace and live for ourselves and idols, or we can enjoy God and His grace and live for Him. And it isn't that you lose God's grace when you live for yourself or you live for idols. You're just left miserable because you're not enjoying him. You're not enjoying his grace. I mean, daily I'm faced with, and I'm sure many of you are faced with the choice to scroll on my phone on things that don't really matter. Or pray. Connect with God through the Bible. I mean, daily I'm chased. I'm I'm faced with that choice. One leaves me empty. One fills me up. 
The other fills me up. See, daily I'm faced with, and many of you parents can relate, with the choice between just sitting on the couch or actually getting off the couch and engaging with my kids. One of them, yeah, in the moment feels great, being on the couch. But in light of eternity, what's going to matter? Not me being comfortable on a couch, but my kids seeing and experiencing and, and feeling the love of God through their dad. See, dads, we have a huge responsibility. You know, most of us subconsciously project the view, our view of God with how our earthly father is. You should feel the weight of that, dads. And we're going to fail. That's why they need Jesus ultimately, right? But wouldn't, don't you want your example? Don't, don't we want our example as, as fathers to be as close to the heavenly father as possible so we can point them to Jesus? But when I'm just sitting on the couch, see, God, God doesn't just sit on the couch. He's actively involved. When you serve yourself and idols, you reject God's grace. Second takeaway, God's grace cannot be manipulated. This was Jephthah. Quit making deals with God. God, if you give me this job, I'll sell my car and give the money to missions. God doesn't want or need your car. Maybe he wants to just grace you with this job just because. Maybe he wants to teach you something by you not getting this job. And that's still his grace. Selling your car doesn't change God's plans for you. Quit making deals with God. Third takeaway, God's grace cannot be earned. Jephthah tried to earn it. We need to quit thinking that God's grace is contingent on our performance. See, we originally received God's grace when we believed in Jesus because of his grace, not because of anything that we did. And we need to continue to receive God's grace day in and day out, even on our worst day, not based on our performance. So whether you were patient with your family this morning or not, your perfect father is here this morning, wants to scoop you up and tell you, I love you. Many of us walk into church each week and we think, you know what? I didn't do a great job following God, so he doesn't even want me here this morning. He doesn't want to speak to me. He doesn't, doesn't want anything to do with me. And that's as far from the truth as could be. See, in spite of you, God knows your heart. So in our worst moments, he still goes, come here. Love you, I want to walk with you. Yeah, that wasn't good, but let's walk forward. The blood of my son covers that. Let's walk forward together. Titus 3, verses 3 through 7 says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Sound familiar? That was Abimelech. That was Jephthah. That was Israel. That, that, that's us. That was me. 
Verse 4, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. What good news. See, some religions dangle a carrot in front of their people to motivate them. Do this and do that. Do this and you'll be blessed and you'll be rewarded. Other religions motivate people with the stick. You better do that or you're going to get it. But see, God, God took the stick, beat Jesus with it on the cross and gave us the carrot. That's the amazing grace of God the Father through Jesus, through His life, death, and resurrection. And we're going to take communion together during the next couple worship songs. And anyone who believes in Jesus is welcome to join us here this morning. And I'm just going to have you come up and take it, and you can take it on your own. But I want you to just have this picture in your mind. Of God giving us grace. You know, I, one of my favorite definitions of grace, and it's often used in children's classrooms, but um, I don't know, I, I'm kind of a child at heart, so I really connect with this. And, and so grace, as an acronym, God's riches at Christ's expense. God's riches at Christ's expense. And I, I have that on the communion tables, and we'll have it on the screen. But I want you to think about that. Think about Jesus getting whipped and beaten, his body broken, his blood shed for us, even though we didn't deserve it. Think about his grace, God's riches. We get God's riches. We get the carrot, even though we didn't deserve it. We didn't earn it. Also, we can enjoy him now and enjoy him for eternity. So let's pray, and then when we're done praying, just come as you, as you like during the next couple worship songs. You don't have to wait for me or anyone's signal. Come if you would like, and, and take it on your own as we sing about His wonderful grace. Let's pray. God, I thank You for Your grace. God's riches at Christ's expense. How amazing is that, God? That even on my worst day, even, even on the Sundays where I walk into this church and I just didn't do a good job that morning with my kids and my spouse or or that week I just went after idols hardcore was just about serving myself you 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 stand here and you go yeah that wasn't good but but I forgive you and I want to walk forward with you because you're my son you're my daughter I love you not because of anything you've done because everything I did I pray that we would be humbled Maybe for the first time or maybe for the millionth time, God, wherever we're at on that spectrum in our relationship with you, God, that you would just encounter us with your grace this morning. We would be amazed by Jesus giving his life for us. I pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.